Hello and welcome to Unstandardized English. I am your host, JPB Gerald, and this is episode one, Expats. Before we get started, though, since this is the very first episode, let me tell you a little bit about me and what I hope to do with this podcast. Well, basically, my wife Alyssa thought I could make a productive contribution to the linguistic and racial discourse, since I'm always saying these things at home and on the internet, and it seemed like it'd be more useful for me to do it with the public in mind. In each episode, I'm going to focus on a word or a phrase or a few related words or phrases and the racial discourse surrounding them. Talk about their meanings, their connotations, their usage, and how it contributes to different impressions of racial categories. I'll speak to people I know, or people I admire and want to get to know, and hopefully we'll all learn something. At least that's the idea. As for me, I'm a 33-year-old doctoral student in New York City. Uh, as of this recording, I'm about three semesters into my EDD in instructional leadership at Hunter, which is part of the City University of New York. I got an eye towards graduation in 2022, but uh, I've got a long way to go, so we'll see what actually happens. My background and my master's are in English language teaching, and I'm mostly focusing my research on racism in the ELT field, although I haven't actually done any empirical studies yet myself, so we'll see what actually happens. Uh, outside of all of that, I run marathons and shorter races. I love the Yankees, and if you're a Red Sox fan, I'm sorry. Uh, I love New York, and I love subways for some inexplicable reason, but it's true. I love my dog Neptune, and I love my wife Alyssa, and I hope you enjoy this. Just breaking in here to say, now that I've actually recorded this, the audio is not great. You can hear my guest, Rob, very well because we were recording, and we recorded from his phone, which means that my voice is coming in from another phone, and every so often I'm kind of distant. But that's okay. I really bring people on so you can hear the guests. So if you find yourself having trouble hearing everything that I'm saying, uh, I'm sorry about that. I will find a different location, or maybe I should not make a mistake in recording the thing, which is what happened this time, and it'll actually sound like I'm present in the location that it's being recorded, as opposed to on the other side of the ocean. Uh, otherwise, I think it's a really interesting conversation, and I hope that you enjoy listening to it. So... Uh, joining me today is Rob Shepard, a veteran of English language teaching professional and a former expat in, I would say, more than 10 different countries. That sound about right, Rob? Uh, I might uh, ultimately disagree that I was an expat, but yeah, more than 10 countries. Um, I've spent some time there, yeah. Right, right. So uh, Rob was also a graduate of the same master's program that I attended at the new school although he was a year or two after me. And uh, we've both been sort of around the ELT block. Um, I wanted to talk to Rob partially because we, you know, we're friends, but also I think we both have interesting expat experiences or, as you might say, not expat experiences. And I thought we might have something to say about the topic of what expats are or aren't. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to just fire off uh, a question and you can tell me what you think about it. How about that? Well, wait, but uh, before we go there, so you you started in Korea too, is that right? 
oh yes, I should talk about my own experience. Shouldn't <laughs> yeah. I? Uh, so I started my ELT career teaching in Korea in 2008 when I was 21 years old. I was teaching at a high school, which means that I had students who were three and a half years younger than I was, <laughs> um, 40 students at a time. My teaching. I'm sure you were an amazing teacher. Um, I became a pretty good one, but when I got there, I was not. Um, yeah, same. But that's actually a big part of what we're talking about, right? Because um, I was told by the recruiters that, you know, all you need is a college degree and you can do it. And in terms of being hired, that was true. Yeah. Um, and I eventually gained some teaching skill, but I did not have any when I began. And uh, in my second year, I started thinking about, wait a second, I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, I need to do something that makes it so that I really know what I'm doing. And that's when I decided I would go back to school. Um, I came back to New York and went to school. And then from there, taught in various places around New York and um, got a nonprofit job. And I do something completely different. But now I'm back in school for an education doctorate. So kind of came full circle anyway. Um, and what you have now, your story is a little bit more circuitous than mine. So why don't you tell me how you got to where you are? Sure. I think it started the same way, just kind of straight out of college, uh, a Craigslist ad uh, that luckily turned out not to be a scam and I ended up in Korea. Um, and then I taught in the U.S. I was only in Korea for a year, came back to Boston and was teaching adults. Um, and that's when I realized I was actually not very good at this and I should probably get better. Uh, and then I went back to Taiwan uh, in 2010. Um, and then I also switched over to nonprofit. Uh, and then about two years ago, I moved to, well, Asia and was bouncing around sort of every month we'd pick a new place. Um, we were doing the digital nomad thing, which is probably another word that we'll touch on. Um, yeah, and so we were moving around for about a year and a half. And what were, I mean, you, we can go more detail later, but what were some of the places that you spent some time in during your um, more recent trekking? Um, China, Vietnam, uh, Southeast Asia, India, Sri Lanka, um, Japan, China, I say that uh, Taiwan, yeah, we were around. Yeah, from everything that you posted on social media, it seemed like you were somewhere new every five days. But obviously, I, I, I was isolated and trying to connect with people back home. Ah, yeah, <laughs> right. So, um, the first question that I wanted to ask you. Um, if you can hear my dog drinking the water in the background, I apologize to all listeners. He does that sometimes. Um, I wanted to ask you, what does the word expat mean to you? Yeah, um, and I, I kind of had a preamble for your answer there, if I can. Um, kind of because I think, well, actually, if, if it's not too uh, indirect, can you go into the premise of the podcast a little bit first. Oh, is that doing my job for me? Um, <laughs> Sorry, but it well, leads okay. into what I want to say. Right. Well, so the premise of the podcast, as I 
said in my little intro, which I did not share with you. But basically, um, I wanted to think about some words that are used in a generally seen as neutral way, but actually can be both inclusionary and exclusionary, especially along racial lines. Um, words that don't necessarily seem like they're related to race and other sorts of group membership, but in practice uh, are actually used for certain groups and not for other groups. So I have a whole long list of words that I'm thinking about. Um, and for whatever reason, probably because of my own personal experience as one, uh, I decided to start with expats because I certainly have my own opinion about who is classified as an expat and who is not quote unquote allowed to be one. So, yeah. Um, so, uh, this is something that's kind of, I've thought about more in the past five years than I ever have in my life before. Um, and that's been a lot of kind of analyzing lots of problematic things in my own way of speaking and thinking and things like that. Uh, and I think kind of an important part of making progress kind of personally and maybe as a society and being anti-racist involves kind of, I actually think you posted something about this maybe a week or two ago on Facebook. Um, it's it's not it, uh, realistically it's not about eradicating uh, wrong thoughts from your own mind. That's kind of impossible. Um, it's it's a matter of recognizing that racism is everywhere. It's pervasive, um, and it's a matter of identifying and combating that thing that 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 kind of thinking and and pattern within your own mind, which. So when it becomes a matter of talking about this out loud on something like a podcast, um, I think we kind of need to admit that we have problematic pictures and images and impulses sometimes. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think that word image is actually really key because um, especially, and you can say if the same was true for you, but I assume it is because it was the same place at the same time. Korea, for example, and I don't mm. want to speak ill of a place, but it was very visual in terms of what they expected mm. from the people that they wanted as the expat teachers. So they called them native speakers, they called them guest teachers, but the people they were hiring, they ideally wanted them to fit a certain image because then they used us to advertise. Sure, to the extent that they, they requested and, and often required a, a photo on your resume. Oh, yeah, I certainly had to put a photo on my resume. And from what I understand, um, and I don't know why they told me this, the only way that I got the job of being a black person is because I went to Princeton. And they mm -hmm. knew enough about that school to get over the fact that I had black <laughs> Wow, <laughs> yeah. I don't know why they told me, but people tell me a lot of things that I don't know why they tell me. Anyway. <laughs> There's a certain bluntness sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so to, to expat, um, I guess I felt the need to say that because my first instinct about what expat conjures in my head is problematic. Um, it's, I mean, literally, obviously it's a person who lives outside their country. Um, but it's very distinctly 
I think for most people, Western people in Eastern places, very often white people in colonized places. Um, I, I, this, this image kind of like pre pre exists my consciousness of things like this, but I have an image of like old, like Humphrey Bogart people in dusty hotels. Um, I'm sure part of this is colored by like Casablanca. Um, but in, I don't know, Mandalay and, and in like a hill station in India or something like that. So it's really connected with colonialism in my, in my mind. Yeah. I, um, there's my own experience. There's images I get from movies, old movies, especially, um, even newer movies like, uh, anything like a Euro trip or something like that. Mm. But, um, I also think like the worst things about expats um, where, you know, when I was in Vietnam, it was just sort of what was going on. I kept meeting all these older American and British men who were just there looking for quote unquote legal young girls. And I'm just like, that's just what was happening. And, uh, to me, that like I, I think, you know, maybe I'm just a cynic, but I think that a lot of the time when I think of expats, even though romantically I want to think, you know, e- e- even the colonial thing, which is really messed up in its own way, is still an even more romantic version of what's probably actually going on from day to day. Um, and I think when you talk about, like, it's usually white or Western people in uh, colonized and or uh, non-white spaces. That's a really big part of it, at least for me. Um, I also think, as I mentioned to you in email, that there's a certain attractiveness to it as a Black person, a Black American, I should say, mm-hmm. because uh, in the middle of the 20th century, you had a lot of writers go and live as expats in Europe. Um, you had, you know, you had Baldwin living in France. You had Du Bois living in Europe also and you hear about that they wrote about that they spoke about that and it's not to say that racism did not exist in France Hmm. it's just that and also this is true of my experience because I lived in France as well it's a different kind of racism it's it's not the 400 years of slavery racism it's just a different it's just more colonialism racism than it is the specific chattel slavery history Hmm. Um, and that's not better or worse. It's just different. And it's sort of like, I think I'll experience this kind of racism because it is fascinating to me as opposed to at home where it feels really, really just different and ugly. It's not better, it's just different. So being an expat, at least to me, um, conjured a different type of emotional experience than being black at home. Uh, it's in. It's interesting that it's writers that come to mind because I mean, Hemingway certainly is, is somebody who stands out in my mind. And uh, I mean, maybe that's part of the, maybe that gets at another part of it is the, the privilege aspect of n- not just, not just the race aspect, but there's also other privilege that we associate with um, uh, being an expat, the, the oh, ability, mm-hmm. the means to do this, you know? Right. It's, it's to, to bring in the word that we're sort of dancing around that I want to bring in, although this is more about the expat part, when you think about 
people who are who either identify as or are categorized as because the two things are slightly different as immigrants there's although there are times when it is framed that way generally speaking it seems much more aside from a student uh like it's not a choice mm. when yep. the word immigrant is used that doesn't mean that it isn't it's just not framed that way whereas with an expat the idea is i think i'll try this country out <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> it doesn't work out just go to another country Um, And, you know, we all knew people in the countries that we lived in in Asia who had been there for 13 years. And they, um, well, this ties into another question I have. Is there a point at which one can, just by virtue of being in a place long enough, stop being an expat and become something else? Mm. Yeah, is that to me? Yeah, to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought about that a lot um, in the kind of weeks, uh, the week leading up to this. Um, I have, I have like a couple of sets of friends that I think about when I think about this. Uh, I have some friends living in the Czech Republic, and they're at the point where they're getting like legal residency there. And I'm. I felt like I was inclined to say like, yeah, they're, they're immigrants there. But then I thought about my friends who are in almost the exact same situation in Taiwan. And that word didn't as naturally come to me. Um, like I had have, have to reason my way to saying, yeah, I guess they're like, you know, if the people in Europe are immigrants, then the people who have, uh, move permanently to Taiwan or immigrants. And in both situations, they're learning the language, they're doing their best to, to, to you know, get used to a, a permanent set of life there. But the big um, difference there is, is racism, is, is uh, a, a white person in Europe conjures a different image than a white person in Asia. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there was no getting around that, 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 the word immigrant came more naturally when I, when, you know, my mental image could more easily map them onto a new culture. Does that make sense? No, I mean, yeah, it's, 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 there's sort of a, uh, how incongruous is this person in the Mm. environment when I think of this environment, you know? And, um, I think of people in Korea who I knew who have been there however many years, but they still don't have that permanent resident status. I, I mean, it, it's called different things in different countries, but you know, mm-hmm. the way we might call permanent resident status in the United States, um, they still are on work contracts. Work visa. You know, they got to get yeah, every year or it could be two years. They still have to re-up. They will always do this. But uh, the law could easily change such that, you know, the place they work for shuts down and they have to really scramble to Mm. find another place. So it could be 20 years, but that, like you're saying, that person would still be classified as an expat. And I think they would probably still think of themselves as an expat, although maybe I should call one of them and put them on here and see what they think. Um, Because, you know, I don't know what they think. Uh, But then what about someone who moves there and they get married 
to a, a person who is from that country. And similar to the United States, you know, they go through the process of becoming a citizen or whatever uh, status there is for someone, depending on the way the country works, because some countries don't allow you to do that would they then be classified as an immigrant? And it's still hard for me to think, like when I lived in, in Korea, I knew a person who's, who owned a restaurant there. He was Canadian and is married to a Korean. I don't want to speak out of turn here. As far as I understood it, technically his wife had to be the owner of the restaurant because he was not a, a citizen. Um, but Definitely yeah. an arrangement in some countries. I don't know particularly about Korea, but yeah. Yeah, like I, I don't know. I don't want to say someone's going to jump in and be like, excuse me. Well, <laughs> so. I have. Um, but whatever the arrangement with the restaurant is, they weren't going anywhere. They had children, right? Yeah. Um, and he wasn't planning to just oh, go back to Canada at some point. Um, I suppose they could have. I don't know. But that was like, that was life. Hmm. I still have trouble thinking of that man as an immigrant. Um, and that is, I think, a problematic association in my head where I think immigrant must be striving or some sort of stereotype. And pe people who are listening to this are going to think, oh, Justin, what's going on with you? But I'm just admitting that like these words are uh. certain images. And when I say striving obviously there are people who think much more negative things about immigrants but of course benevolent stereotypes are still harmful so i'm just saying that uh i do have certain benevolent stereotypes in my head because of everything that i've been socialized to hear and think and see um but ultimately of the two i'm always going to have a more negative association with expats because even though there is a romantic ideal of it um there's still this and now that I'm back in academia there's a lot of evidence to show how not all before someone jumps in hashtag not all expats but um, plenty of expats are just happy to live off exploitative systems well, while you were saying that I a thought occurred to me about like integration and there's an expectation right or wrong, there's an expectation that immigrants will integrate in some sense to a community. Um, I think the stereotypical expat, there's certainly, like you said, not all expats, but the stereotype is the expat in the expat bar going around whatever country they're in, speaking English and getting by on their linguistic privilege. What do you... Uh -huh. What do you think? Well, absolutely. I mean, even more so than integrate, it's assimilate, right? Because I think that there's a status difference, whether it's race, because it depends on the country, whether it's race, whether it's class, whether it's language, there is a status difference, especially if you are white, if you speak English, if you are from certain of the English-speaking countries, hmm. um, you are classified as higher status and therefore people want to be you, right? Why should you want to, quote unquote, lower yourself to the level of the people there? And not, it's not that these people are necessarily bad. This is what they're being told, what's being reinforced for them. Excuse me. Um, so I know that if you go to certain countries and they tell you, 
don't worry about learning the language. Just come here. There's a ready-made community for you. There's an apartment here. Mm-hmm. Barely have to pay any tax. Yep. You just come here and have a party. And how about it? I mean, I was 21. What was I going to say? No. Same, <laughs> I didn't, didn't have a job. <laughs> so, you know, like I was 21 and I was living on my dad's couch. And I was like, that seems like a pretty good idea. Um, but to really take a step back and think about it, if we're in a position to be really critical about our uh, decisions we make, and not everybody's in that position, um, but more expats are than people who are classified as immigrants, then I think it behooves us to really think about, like, what does it mean that I don't actually have to try very hard to get this job? Why, why is this job being handed to me just because of the type of passport that I have or the language that I speak? Um, where, you know, even in a lot of these places, there would be teachers who had worked for, I don't know, decades and spoke, which this word, standard, standardized English um, to an extremely high level. And when the native quote-unquote, native speaker came into the school like I did, um, those teachers had to assist us. Yep. And were paid less and were more qualified. Yep. Yep. And spoke English just, just like that wasn't, like if they didn't speak any English, it'd be one thing. Mm. But not that it'd be okay, but like you can see how they would need to work together. Yeah. But uh, like how, on what planet should I be considered at a higher level than um, people 20 years my senior, 20 years of experience? And then the, the worst thing for me that I think about a lot is that part of the contract said that I had to do teacher training for these teachers <laughs> who had been... Oh, you had to train them? Oh, yes. Oh, God, I didn't realize that. Wow. Yeah, but I, and then like I didn't know what to do. What am I going to say to these teachers who are teachers and I'm not a teacher? Oh, my God. Wow, yeah. that's a twist. I, I, I didn't experience that. Wow. Yeah. And um, generally speaking, we just turned it into, like, they asked me questions about, uncom- like, English colloquialisms and slang. It was fun. I did not pretend that I could teach them anything about teaching. We just talked about things that they couldn't look up online about English. And it ended up becoming fun. Like if we didn't take a step back and think about it, it was fun because at one point, one of the teachers who was only a little bit older than I was printed out the lyrics to uh, Empire State of Mind and had me go through it line by line and explain all of the the illusions that Jay-Z was making. Oh my God, that's a a task. Yeah, it's kind of racist, but (laughs) I I I had a lot of like, Please explain hip hop to me. Um, <laughs> things happen, but um, you know, honestly, as many issues as I had with that sort of thing in Korea, considering what I was there doing and the fact that I didn't have to work to get a job, um, and the fact that no matter how much I stood out there, it still was not nearly as just violent as the hatred is here in the United States. If you go down the wrong street. It really wasn't that bad for me. I mean, it's bad for someone. It wasn't that bad for me. 
Mm. Um, before, let's see. Um, well, um, I kind of I kind of asked most of these. Um, when well, go ahead. Yeah. I guess I'm going back at you. Um, well, so first of all, I, I had I'd kind of thought that that the connection between expat and colonialism was was just sort of a, a connotation thing in my head from movies. But as you were saying that, I'm realizing that, I mean, English English is a really key part of this. Uh, I guess that's obvious, but but now as you're saying that and as I have a chance to think about it again, I mean, that's a very direct consequence of continued imperialism, of linguistic imperialism, that, you know, there was there was the direct colonial expat 150 years ago. But what we're talking about now is, is still like an heir to that legacy or however you want to think about it. Right. I mean, that it's the same system that, that, that allows us to do that these days. Um, yeah, I think a good example of how that's the case is how, when I got there, I um, our, I was in the public school teacher program. So we had a, a collective orientation that was about a week long. And in that orientation, we got some classes on teaching because we did not know how to teach. Um, and we also got some classes on Korean culture, which was useful. Um, and then we got like a class on the language of Korean, like the alphabet. And that was useful. The Korean alphabet is, is not, not that many characters, um, I believe. Great alphabet. Great, yeah. And it was redesigned in the 19th century to be easier for people outside of the country to understand. They're um, very rightfully proud of it. <laughs> um, and just an interesting distinction because English will never do that. <laughs> no, <laughs> negative. It will never make itself easier to understand. You just better learn as it is. Um, but one, and then... So the point being, Korean being actually fairly easy to understand, at least the basics, right? The grammar, I, but I mean, the, you know, the words and the vocabulary and the characters and the sounds are not super complicated. Um, so we learned certain things and then I became a, a toddler and every sign I saw, I started reading it and I was so proud of myself. I'm walking around saying, that says computer. It's like, <laughs> yeah, but it's a picture of a computer. You knew that. Um, but anyway, I learned a few phrases, and I would say them to my colleagues, and they would tell me that I was so good at, just so good at Korean. I was so good at Korean. Yes, so oh my God, you'd hear it all the time, and you knew you were terrible at Korean. It's like, I knew like six words, man. Um, and I understand they're being polite to my colleagues, they're meeting me. Um, but, like, when I take a step back and think of that, now, I would try to practice with them, and they would say, no, I want to practice my English. My English is bad. I cannot say it's <laughs> Korean. My Korean is bad. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is something I've said to my students in the years since then. I said, if you can put together the sentence that expresses your doubt in your ability to speak the language, you probably shouldn't have that many doubts. In your You're doing all right, yeah. You know? Um, and... So, like, the, that whole, it, it reminds me to get to a different topic of, like, race, where, like, if someone 
if a white person learns a little bit about racism, you know, there's the whole like, oh, you did a, you did a good, you did a good job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and so it's the same with the language, like, because English is dominant and it's a special, a specific type of English, the standardized type is dominant. If you can approximate that, whether it's through natives, you know, being a, a first language speaker or having learned it in school or whatever, then you have this immense power in many, many parts of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and I noticed it even more when I went to on, on trips that you spent more time in these places. But when I went to like Cambodia, every single person who worked there seemed to speak exceptional English mm. and not all of them just mean the hotels or wherever I was staying where hospitality that just sort of is a thing although of course expecting them to understand English when a lot of them don't have a chance to really study in school yet they still learn it um, but like just at the you know museums or wh whatever it is what I was doing uh, like people's just perfect perfect and they knew everything they knew all these things about the United States. I remember, and this is now I'm back in Korea. One day, I, you know, I had a friend, Jeremy, who can tell you about this. I was in Seoul and a guy said, you're from the United States? He just started listing states. I just, <laughs> he knew, I met a lot of Canadians there. He knew more states than the Canadians knew. <laughs> just, just, just states in the middle of the country. Just, he's like, Nebraska, Ohio. And I'm like, those are definitely states. Um, <laughs> but like there's this fascination and this, this hierarchy and it's funny, but it's also kind of sad. I mean, look, if someone's genuinely interested in something, they're genuinely interested in something, but like the fact that, uh, I was this 21 year old kid who I had not earned this. I was not coming there at conquering and conquering is a terrible word, uh, but like just like some person who had any power or reason to be genuflected towards, mm. but they were doing it anyway it was just sort of confounding and at the time i didn't really get it and now i look back and i understand why all of it was happening but um mm. and also to think about that whole like just the power of english you know the the we in our field we start to talk about how english is a lingua franca right brings mm. people together it cuts across cultures and all these things right and that's a nice ideal. And I suppose if they're going to use a language, sure, I guess they could use one that already exists. But it's something's being pushed out when it's being used. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah. You you mentioned um, you know going to a place like Cambodia where you you might expect it less. For I mean that that's something to dig into on its own. Why do we expect it less in a place like Cambodia? Um, but I, so th that surprised me as well too. Um, but, and I should say that this is not based on any data except just my own experience, but I was really surprised to notice that, yeah, in the less developed countries that depended more on Western tourism, that was where you would get lots of remarkably fluent English and then the one place that that had that we struggled the most not speaking the local language was Japan, which again getting into the reasons would would be interesting, but 
I expected Japan to have a much higher level of English because we think wealthy country, uh, advanced, you know, their school system's fantastic. I walked away thinking, man, they don't, they don't speak much English because they don't depend on it. They don't need to speak English um, in, in terms of tourism and things like that. They can afford not to, which, I, I don't know, that felt revealing to me that, that the reason that English remains so widespread has a whole lot to do with the flow of money. Oh, of course. I mean, it's all, I mean, it's what follow the money, right? For me, yeah. the place I had that experience was China, but that doesn't mean that it's not the same thing. Yeah. Um, I was in Beijing and I started to have a big, like, like, like a, a burgeoning understanding of the dynamics of what was going on. Mm. Um, because I, uh, I got lost in the subway, which for a person like me who loves the subway is just a truly embarrassing thing. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I got lost and I'm asking for help and I had a map of the hostel I was trying to get to and people were very kind, but we could not figure out what was going on. <laughs> and like, there was no, in, you know, in Korea, most of this, the characters are, um, you know, phonetic. It's not, not, not so in Chinese. Yeah. You're not going to sound out opinion. <laughs> yeah. So um, that was not the case. And I really had a problem. And I had also just been, uh, been, I had been robbed. So that was not good. But I don't want to perpetuate any stereotypes of China. Um, Just that the person there had, because it was actually based on assumptions, he thought I was a rich European when he robbed me. (laughs) So he, I got off a bus and he told me he was going to take me to where I was going. And then he drove me into an alley and asked for 80 euros. Oh, Euros. Euros. <laughs> um, which like it goes to show that the the assumption is different. Also, if you thought I spoke English, I'm surprised you said Euros because I guess I don't know. There's a lot of things going on in that situation. Yeah, yeah. Difficult day. It was also very cold. I was not having a good time. But um I say all of that to say that like, yeah, we assume that they will uh learn English based on how much money they have. But mm. It is so often driven by how much they need English to get money, not by how much mm. money they have in the first place. Yeah. yeah. They being the country, not necessarily the individuals, um, although it's related, but it's not necessarily the same. Um, and, you know, like Korea is definitely a country that is very developed in most of it. And, um, you had people who you wouldn't have even known had, had not been born in the United States or England or wherever. But um, I had plenty of students who really struggled, yet they'd been forced to take English for like 10 years by the time I got there. Um, and like the idea was that they were going to have to take English to get into certain colleges and if they did not do well in English, then I was told, that doesn't mean it's true, but the like stereotype was, and that's how you end up working at McDonald's. I was like, oh. <laughs> um, I mean, like McDonald's there, obviously. So like, um, it was the whole, it wasn't too different from the way that we do things in the education system here, except even more intense and based on learning an entirely different language that is much harder to learn than say Korean is for us. Mm. 
So it was just, it was just every time when you really think about the way English is used, and not just used, but demanded, hmm. it, uh, it becomes challenging to reconcile. And so the fact that I felt somewhat complicit um, in my time there made me, was part of the reason I left. I mean, I didn't leave my contract or anything, but part of the reason I wanted to come home and learn more to at least, if I were to do that sort of thing again, um, were to teach the language, to know what I was doing and to really get a more context. So which is why I went back to school again, again, because I can't stop going to school. Um, in 20th grade. This is ridiculous. Um, 20th grade, is it? When you think about it, right? 16 for college and then two for yeah. math and second year. So, um, but uh, to really get more context, because I think a lot of the time, and it's not necessarily our fault as incoming professionals, but the field is very invested in not considering its role in colonialism and imperialism because if it was interested in considering that then i don't think it would do what it does yeah i know what you mean there's certainly lots of talk about that about the fact that you know your research needs to be in english to be published and to be read if it is published uh, yeah i think yeah, that's a big even if you don't that's not your language right so yeah uh, it's the, the concept of that I learned in my class in the spring, the lingua nullius, the Ooh. assumption that lingua nullius, it's, it's just Latin because people like to be that way, but um, n like no, like the assumption. Like default? Yeah, default, right. Okay. Ah, interesting. I like that yeah. one. Yeah. So basically the assumption that if if you don't say anything about the language used, it's English. Hmm. You know, oh yeah, I've been reading about the what's the rule that w whenever you do linguistic research now you should say that it's about English, otherwise you're perpetuating that. Uh, is it is it Miller's rule? I, I'm not sure. I mean, I heard what you're saying, but I I, I can't answer the question of what. Uh, yeah, the yeah. There's a name for it. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. So that's like a, a big thing, and also I think like when we if we learn in the first class in our master's program was a. English in the world and we learned well it was one of the first classes and we learned like there are this many people who speak English at home and there's this many people who learn it somewhere else and there's this many people you know like the different circles the right circles, yeah. Yeah, circle thing. Um, although people don't like the circles anymore but I'm just saying we learned the circles mm -hmm. and um, all of the research is still done by the people in the first circle. <laughs> um, we don't really listen to the users. Um, I mean, the people in the first circle are still users, but we, we pretty much only listen to them, default to them, and them being us as, as considered experts mm -hmm. um, on the language that so many other people use. You know, um, it's all, I mean, this is a British thing, but when they say that received pronunciation that's actually a good phrasing for mm, yeah. the way that uh the language is used because it's received from elsewhere it's kind uh, of on the same model as like st the shift is standardized and racialized that's actually that term's kind of ahead of its time right it, it like they i don't think that's what they meant when they created that phrasing yeah, but yeah. It, it works yeah um, and I, I do have to wonder if that's true in every 
When I look at a, a, an issue of TESOL Journal, and maybe TESOL is different from linguistics broadly, but TESOL Journal's got a lot of diversity in, um, in, in who's, who's writing the articles, who's getting published. Um, I don't know how recently that, that has become the case, but. Well, I, um, I'm actually interested in this, and since I'm going to get to an end some point here, <laughs> yeah, like a, a good way to get there. But one thing I want to look at, because, you know, there's, there's so many journals, hmm. um, and so many of them are inaccessible. I don't just mean literally, I mean inaccessible in the way that they're written. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. So a lot of the time to even get in to a lot of these things, there is a certain house style that is recommended. Um, yeah, I call it bad writing, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, or, or not even just bad, but convoluted for its yeah. own sake. And so then if you are someone who is just a language user, but if you are a user, you, you can very well be an expert in the language you're using. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to make the car to be an expert in driving it. Um, <laughs> I I'll use a car analogy because I hate driving. But um, the, the point being, if you can't mimic that type of writing, then often you are not placed inside the expertise circle. Mm, and, sure. uh, if you actually have the skill to communicate with a certain large group of language users, then why are we keeping you on the outside of the gate? And I think, mm. and here's a perfect metaphor that I'm going to end on. I think we have used this word differently for the last 20 years with the internet, but I'm going to bring, bring it back to the original meaning. I think a lot of people in English are trolls because no, I mean, like, you know, like on the bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Because under a bridge, I guess. Right. Yeah. Um, because when I think about expats or any of the words I'm talking about, especially to bring it back to expats, you know, no one's going to say this out loud, but this idea being you can only pass this bridge to become an expat if you are this person. You can only, mm-hmm. you know, be considered yes. this. Yeah. Pass this bridge, you know, if you do these things, that will make me happy under my bridge. Otherwise, I'm mm-hmm. going gonna, gonna to scream. I'm going to th- burn the bridge down before letting you cross it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm getting too deep into fairy tale land, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> I do, people, yeah. People are more interested in the bridge that they think they control than Oh, control. Was that on purpose? Uh, well. Troll control. No, it wasn't. <laughs> but, sure. Um, <laughs> but you get what I'm saying. The, yeah. the, the point is that like people are way too invested in having control over language. Um, and it results in lots of things. It results in big problems. And it results in small things that still matter, like the fact that an expat and an immigrant, by definition, shouldn't really be different. Yet you and I have discussed now and understood and seen that 
when you think of an expat in your head and you think of an immigrant in your head, it's tough to reconcile those two images because they just aren't the same in the popular consciousness. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if you want to cut it off there. If I can give you one more quick anecdote, yeah, go ahead. Um, you can always clip it. Um, I, so you said in the public consciousness and, and I, one of the questions I kind of had for you was how, how aware do you think other people are of this? Do you think this is something that's, that's only academics are aware of this, the, the issue here, or, or is it in the popular consciousness? And I was, I was talking to my girlfriend just an hour ago and I, I, I was all ready to mansplain. I thought I was, I was going to be clever. Um, and I was like, you know, you know, I, I was ready to like pose the question to her, you know, why is it that a person who uh, lives in Taiwan permanently is not the same as has a different word than a person from Taiwan who lives in America permanently and without missing a beat? She just was, oh, like racism it, because they're white. Um, I, I kind of thought that that was like a, a special knowledge that I'd, that I'd acquired over the past year or so. But but she knew it right away. I don't know. I think, I just want to be honest with this, and hopefully if any academics end up listening to this, they will not throw me out of the, of the field. But I think a lot of the argument should be taken to the academics. Because I think that, like your girlfriend, you know, although there are plenty of people around the world who just don't care about this, most people know if you were to ask them what the difference were, you know, between the two terms and, and why there is a difference, I think they, they may not call it racism, but I think they would come to some approximation that was somewhat mm. close to it. I think that there is a certain type of person, especially in the linguist world, that is very invested in very specific meanings of words. And I think those are the people that need to have those definitions pushed and challenged. Mm. And the the yeah, yeah, they're the gatekeepers. Um, and uh, I, I hope that we can start conversations such that that is possible. Yeah. So thank you all for listening to that. I really hope that you enjoyed the conversation that we had and that you stuck all the way through the uh, not great audio on my side of things. I will be back with another episode within a few weeks. Hopefully I'll be able to put together a regular schedule within a few episodes. And uh, I really hope that you enjoyed this. I enjoyed making it and I would like to continue to have these conversations with you. You can follow me on Twitter at JPBGerald. Otherwise, I will speak to all of you soon.